they're acting like criminals. <sighs> However, um, some of the propositions that passed were good. Um, so that's positive. I think if it's Prop D, that's going to hopefully give more money to Muni and will hopefully provide Muni with more funds to, to for drivers, and that will just make service a lot better. And also Dean Preston, who was elected, is someone who has really championed public transportation, and he was quoted in an article I read a while ago saying that he ideally Muni should be free. So I think the idea of pushing that along services that are there for everyone will be a lot better. Woo. Okay. That's a bit of a rant I wasn't planning on saying quite so much, and well, it came out. Coming up in a little bit, I'm going to be playing a podcast that I'm going to listen to so I can learn more about the coup in Bolivia. Some folks aren't calling it a coup, but it just kind of goes in line with the U.S. and South American countries and like, oh, if there's a socialist who's elected, the U.S. better get its butt in there and it's just fucking awful what's happening and I want to learn more about it. So it's the podcast is called Red Nation and it's the title of the episode. It's called the Red Nation Podcast and it's the coup against uh, Evo Morales with Ben Norton. So I'll be playing that in a little bit. Gonna take some music break, play a little bit more Gang of Four, and then we'll get back to the uh, that next podcast. Stay tuned.
heated couplings in the sun Or is that untrue? Colder couplings in the night Never saw your body Your kiss so sweet Your sweat so sour Sometimes I'm thinking that I love you But I know it's only lust The changes do you good I always do it good You know the changes do you good You know the changes do you good Damage goods Send them back I can't work, I can't achieve Send me back Open the till Give me the change you said would do me good Refund the cost You said you're cheap I'm starting it right now. Yeah. I'm a journalist in the US in the settler colony known as the United States of America and I am the assistant editor of an investigative journalism website called The Gray Zone and we focus on US Empire. It's investigative reporting focusing on the crimes of U.S. imperialism, and especially in the past few years, we focused a lot on Latin America because, you know, in the Obama administration, of course, the U.S. was still overthrowing independent leftist governments in the region, still exercising this kind of neo-colonial control over the region. But under Trump, it's really gone to new heights to the degree where you now have several Trump administration officials openly invoking the Monroe Doctrine, which is the explicitly colonial 200-year-old U.S. colonial doctrine that treats Latin America as its own backyard. So in the past two years, I have done reporting in Colombia, Venezuela, Honduras, Nicaragua, Ecuador. So there's a lot of stuff happening, and Bolivia is unfortunately the latest in this longer pattern, right, of neocolonial aggression against this region, which has been trying to free itself and just fight for independence. And we have seen what's happening now in, in Brazil.
Yeah, and I think it's almost been a year since Trump was at the United Nations actually invoking the Monroe Doctrine and this kind of like hemispheric manifest destiny that the United States not only has uh, lays claim to its you know contiguous uh, land base with which is now known as like the 48 states and of course like Hawaii, Puerto Rico, Guam uh, and Alaska, um, which are not connected. Um, but it also is saying that it controls the destiny and the future of of the entire hemisphere. And this goes, this actually precedes, the Monroe Doctrine actually precedes Manifest Des Destiny. And so oftentimes people say the Manifest Destiny influenced the Monroe Doctrine, but it's quite the opposite. Uh, American foreign policy and domestic policy, as we now know it as settler colonialism, has always been imperialistic. And I think it's important to remember that. And also at that same UN meeting, I believe uh, Ebo Morales um, directly challenged uh, the U.S. kind of interpretation of its of its um, dominance and his, its uh, uh, assumed hegemony um, over Latin America. And so this is in many ways um, a kind of revanchist uh, settler colonialism that's being exported, not just within, you know, it's it's being exported to other places like Bolivia, like Venezuela. And one thing that really caught my eye, and I, I, I think it's a great place to start this conversation, is when Fernando uh, Camacho, the opposition leader in, in Bolivia, who's really kind of um, leading this, this right-wing racist coup, entered the Plurinational uh, Legislative Assembly yesterday and put a Bible over the Bolivian flag uh, inside that government palace. And he announced that uh, Pachamama, or the Andean indigenous word for kind of the, the goddess of, of, um, of all creation, will, quote, never return to the palace. Bolivia belongs to Christ. No, I mean, it says everything alone. Just that alone. And of course, there's also been numerous videos published of these opposition fascists burning the indigenous flag that is used, that is recognized as the dual flag of Bolivia. And this is an important point to keep in mind is that if you listen to the rhetoric of this right wing racist opposition, not only are they opposed to Evo Morales because this is a socialist from the working class, he was a farmer, he was a coca farmer. And he democratically came to power and pushed out the right-wing oligarchs and elites who have dominated Bolivian politics for the entire modern history of Bolivia as, as a nation-state. But also because he empowered and recognized the indigenous peoples in Bolivia and made them part of the country. I'm so glad you mentioned the plurinational state. The opposition has been enraged since 2009 when in his first term, Morales created a new constitution which was voted on democratically by the Bolivian population with nearly 62% of the vote. And this declared Bolivia to be a plurinational state that recognized indigenous peoples as part of the country and also recognized their languages. So in Bolivia, the country recognizes something like three dozen languages, including many indigenous languages and also Spanish. And the, according to the Constitution, it says that every government communication needs to be in two languages. One of them has to be in Spanish, and then the other one has to be the indigenous language of the community that it's dealing with. So and another, another major part of that is that until 2009, Bolivia was not a secular state. It actually was a Christian, a Catholic state. And 
For the first time in 2009, this new constitution made Bolivia officially secular, recognizing other indigenous religions. And the far-right opposition forces like Camacho, we'll talk more about him, many of them are descendants of the European colonialists, and not even just the colonialists hundreds of years ago. Several of his major allies are also from Croatian families and other European families who were Nazi collaborators and fascists who fled after Nazi Germany lost in World War II, and they happen to be Christian fanatics. And what's really wild is that their main base of opposition, which is the city Santa Cruz, which is a major financial district, financial hub, it's also the whitest city in the country with the, the smallest indigenous population, in this in in this city santa cruz there are two major explicitly neo-fascist groups both of which are closely linked to the opposition coup forces both of which are european style fascist phalange phalangist groups uh, christian fanatic groups and fanatically anti-indigenous groups those are the kind of muscle behind this coup those are the far-right extremists who who sacked and pillaged the house of Evo Morales and his family members, who tortured an indigenous female mayor from his party, the Movement Towards Socialism Party. So there are a lot of things we can talk about, but it's important to understand that these opposition forces are, when, when we say fascist, it's not just an insult. Many of them are either linked to or actually members of explicitly fascist organizations that saw Evo Morales' administration as not, some, not, not not only something that challenged their white supremacist colonial domination of this mostly indigenous country, but also challenged the, the Christian fascist kind of hegemonic view that this is a Christian nation. And, and I'm so glad you mentioned that, you know, when Camacho took over the palace, he said, now we're, we're restoring God to politics. When they say God, they mean white Jesus. Right. And what, what is what is the, like the denomination of this? Is it are they Catholic uh, or are they uh, Pentecostal? Like uh, what's happening in Brazil? Yeah, they're actually mostly Catholics, which is interesting. So, in terms of like the fascist European spectrum, they're kind of more like Francoists, like the kind of Spanish fascists. Although, what's interesting is, I can talk more about this later. But there is a there are two main groups I mentioned, two fascist groups in Santa Cruz that that are behind this coup. And one of them is called the Union Juvenil Cruceñista, which is the the youth the union like the it's hard to translate like the youth union of um, Santa Cruz, like the Santa Cruz Youth Union. And this is a Francoist style fascist group which is linked to a neo-phalangist party which is called the Bolivian Socialist Falange. Now, they're not socialist. The, re the reason they're called that is because they were created during the fascist era. And, of course, the Nazi party was not socialist. They were fascist. But they used that for historical reasons because socialism was so popular among the working class. Anyway, the point is that this neo-fascist group is based on the Falange, which was the fascist model of the Catholics in Spain. So specifically, what we're seeing is a kind of Francoist style fascists who were inspired by Spanish fascists who carried out genocide and mass murder against ethnic and religious and political minorities inside Spain. 
they're, they follow in that same tradition of kind of Catholic fascism. And what's interesting is they have the backing of Brazil, where you have this more evangelical fascism that is that is linked to forces like Bolsonaro. And there were leaked recordings, which we can talk about, that show opposition members in Bolivia discussing how they have support from Brazil. And also one of the main far-right opposition leaders in Bolivia lives in Brazil and is a strong Bolsonaro supporter. And he is one of these Croatian-Bolivian right-wing oligarchs who has been supporting from afar the coup forces. Yeah, and um, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Like, who are these people? I think there's this tendency uh, in in the English-speaking world, especially in the global north, to really kind of have a naive view. People think that just because people are protesting in the street, that somehow these are forces of good or they're opposing tyranny. Um, and it's a very simplistic um, kind of narrative that's being portrayed. And I, I remember reading on social media, people were reposting this this uh, BBC headline of, you know, the 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 police forces join the protesters in Bolivia and as if that was some kind of like great achievement. And it's like if you look at the United States, when, you know, when the Proud Boys are rolling through Portland, they're joined by the cops like this isn't you know, there's an alignment with um, these particular kind of right wing forces and the most kind of. Uh, uh, um dangerous elements right-wing elements of the state and so who are these people and like what is their backstory in this particular um coup and in, in fomenting it well to understand the opposition forces and the composition of the police and things like that it's important to under also understand who evo morales is because it's not it's not stressed enough that this is a guy who comes not only from an indigenous community but he comes from the social movements Evo Morales was a very poor farmer who was a coca farmer, and he was a part of a, a social movement that was called Movimiento del Socialismo, the movement towards socialism. And then they, they coalesced into a party largely led by the indigenous communities and their local activists. And he's, of course, the first indigenous leader in the entire history of Bolivia. This is a country that has a history of European colonial domination, and he comes in in 2006 and was democratically elected and ushers in this new era where he says, you know, not only are we going to fight for socialism, we're going to fight for sovereignty and equality. And we're going to recognize these indigenous communities who have been not only oppressed, but also intentionally erased from the political architecture of our country for its entire modern history during Spanish colonialism and after Spanish colonialism. And the right-wing opposition, understandably, considering who Evo Morales is, they're the opposite. They are the oligarchs, the descendants of European colonialists. You know, it echoes so many other leaders in the region, but in, including Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. But one of the key differences is that Hugo Chavez came out of the military. You know, Hugo Chavez always stressed in his speeches, he famously said, I am part indigenous, I am part African. And he stressed and, and brought in and emphasized indigenous and Afro-descendant communities into the Venezuelan left in a way where traditionally it had been dominated by more, you know, elite educated sectors. And Evo was doing something very similar in his own historical and political context. But the difference, and I think this ultimately is one of the reasons that he didn't have as much state control as Chavez did, 
is that Chavez was a very popular military leader who had the military on his side. And then throughout the process of the Bolivarian Revolution, he created a new police force, an explicitly revolutionary police force, disbanding the old police, which were the kind of colonial era police. And actually, if you go to Venezuela today, I just I spent five months there this year. I just got back about a month ago. And if you look at the police in Venezuela, they are largely women and they're they're largely dark skinned. They're indigenous or partially indigenous or black Venezuelans. And they have a very different function in society because they're not the police as they were before Hugo Chavez came in. And and the thing with, with Evo is that Evo came from the social movements and his base was always at the grassroots. So the institutional power of these forces that have a history of links to colonial domination and being tools of colonial oppression, like the police and the military in Bolivia, he never was really able to control. And, you know, there was always this on and off alliance. And, and ultimately, it was the military, of course, that called for him to step down in this coup. And who are the forces politically behind the coup? Of course, they are the landowners. They are the people from the families who controlled the gas reserves and the lithium reserves that were nationalized by Evo Morales. Because, you know, what's what's incredible is this this idea that Bolivia is a poor country or any of these other countries throughout Latin America or the global south are poor countries. Now, actually, of course, they're very rich countries not only rich in their history, in their culture and resistance, but also rich in their natural resources. And Bolivia actually, you know, this is kind of a stupid Orientalist name anyway, but it's been referred to as the Saudi Arabia of lithium because oh, Bolivia, wow. <laughs> well, it's just a stupid name, but yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but it has 50 to 70% of the world's known lithium reserves. And lithium is very much needed for electronics and for batteries, rechargeable batteries in our phones, our computers and and cars. And Bolivia, Evo Morales recognized that and wanted to use that, the wealth, not only of the gas reserves, which he nationalized, but also the lithium reserves to benefit the population and to use those resources to fund social programs, to help, you know, help indigenous communities and work with them to help develop their communities and also, you know, help build schools and create a universal healthcare system, which he did, which was praised by the United Nations. And his idea, like Chavez with the oil reserves in Venezuela, was to use those natural resources to benefit the whole population and not this small elite of European descendant rich people. And he nationalized, he he did what he said he would do. He nationalized those natural resources and most of the opposition, as you can imagine, are led by these oligarch families that had traditionally controlled those natural resources and have been trying to, to reestablish control over the political system ever since he came into power 13 years ago. Yeah, this is like really fascinating because it, it gets right to the heart of, you know, what uh, my friend uh, Andrew Curley has, you know, correctly called a green imperialism. Uh, meaning that like there's kind of this and even Ebo Morales has called it uh, a colonial environmentalism, this idea that a place like Bolivia, you know, is is should function only as a resource colony. Right. And if it develops its own natural resources, especially like uh, um, uh, something like uh, lithium, which is, you know, which will which will be used uh, if, you know, this kind of current 
uh, Green New Deal in the United States has anything to say about it will be used in these, you know, this this uh, post carbon future where um, Americans will be, you know, driving around in their big SUVs with uh, lithium batteries that are mined from places like, you know, the Andean Mountains and not just in Bolivia, but in other, you know, other places like Peru. Uh, and this is this the, the the utter contradiction, the failure, in in my opinion, of the left in the United States and Canada, particularly, to understand, to fully grasp, like what is going on. They would rather um, have Bolivian children go without schools, go without hospitals, um, go without basic infrastructure, just so that they could have the kind of moral authority to say this place is pure, while never recognizing recognizing the fact that. The United States and Canada and first world countries are over consuming and they're producing 40% of the world's trash, right? So like the United States is 5% of the world's population. It's producing 40% of the world's trash and they're often dumping it in, in you know, third world countries and places in the, in, the, in the global south. And in this particular context, one of the ways in which um, this uh, coup um, you know, as Sina, he's on the line, as Sina has called it, this gringo fever has been ramped up is to accuse Ebo Morales of being against the environment and being a false kind of prophet of, of Pachamama, of um, indigenous people in their defense of the land, while not even taken into consideration that, you know, he, he he's a coca grower, right? And um, that was at one point in time, one of the main exports of Bolivia was coca. But because of the U.S. so-called drug war, they've strangled that economy and have prevented them from developing that economy. And if you look at a lot of the graffiti um, by the opposition and by the right wing uh, and the slogans against um, Evo Morales, they call him the narco dictator because he's he, he's associated with that coca plant. Um, and so it's just really fascinating that this whole thing, and I don't know if you have anything else to say about that, because I think in the U.S. Um, there's this idea that if we change domestic policy, somehow we're going to just be better consumers and um, better stewards of the environment while completely ignoring the, ignoring this, this imperial reality. Well, of course, a few things to say there. The first quick point I'll say in response to this ridiculous idea that Morales is some kind of narco dictator I mean, this is a guy who, first of all, he's neither of those two things. He's won every democratic election. He has always followed the, the laws of, of Bolivia that he, you know, has worked with the masses of people on. And so part of that is this idea that he, he wasn't allowed to run again because it was his fourth term. But the Supreme Court actually allowed him to run again. So he's going along with what the Supreme Court said. That's completely legal. And as for, as for being a narco dictator, I mean, that is even more laughable. There is no evidence whatsoever. It is a complete lie. And like you're saying, all it is is because when he was a farmer, he was making coca, which is uh, for thousands of years has been what indigenous communities in this area have been growing. And it's only in the past several decades with this neo-colonial imperialist war on drugs, which is the most hypocritical thing ever, that this indigenous form of livelihood that people, the communities have relied on for eons has been criminalized. And of course, what that criminalization does is help to further justify the criminalization of indigenous communities and, and ultimately the exploitation of the land and resources that they're, they're living on. And in addition to that, the hypocrisy is just so mind-blowing when you think about the fact that 
if you look at the actual U.S. puppets in the region, it's actually, I was, I was in Honduras this past summer in June, in July, for the 10th anniversary of the U.S. right-wing military coup there, which is similar to the coup against Evo in many ways. And also, like Bolivia, Honduras is a very indigenous population. About 80% of the country, uh, I mean, give or take, are descendants of indigenous people. And in Honduras, the president who was overthrown, Manuel Celaya, democratically elected, he was a kind of progressive nationalist who moved to the left, and he was explicitly overthrown because he was making alliances with Lula da Silva in Brazil and Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. What, what he also stressed is that, that Honduras is a U.S. colony. That's the language he uses, that Honduras has been made into a colony, and the DEA is the biggest drug cartel in the world that uses our country as a haven for drug smuggling. And and this is not even just him saying that. This is not just the left-wing opposition in Honduras. In fact, a few weeks ago, a New York court, a federal court in the U.S., just sentenced Tony Hernandez, who is the brother of Honduras's U.S.-backed right-wing dictator, Juan Orlando Hernandez, who's known as Ho, J-O-H, his brother sentenced for smuggling, smuggling tons, tons, we're talking enormous amounts of cocaine, as well as machine guns. And the U.S. court itself admitted that Tony Hernandez was using this drug money to fund his brother inside Honduras, who was stealing elections, even the Organization of American States, which we can talk about, which is a major U.S. puppet force, this right-wing force that has been backing these coups, even they had to acknowledge that in 2017, Honduras stole the election. Of course, we don't, we don't ever hear people in mainstream media and the U.S. government refer to Honduras, this U.S. colony, as a narco-dictatorship. It is an actual narco-dictatorship where El Chapo Guzman himself sent a million dollars in cash to Juan Orlando Hernandez, the puppet leader backed by the U.S. And everywhere you go in Honduras, everywhere I was, we were at, we were at like a middle-class bar, and people will just spontaneously start chanting, Fuera ho! Fuera ho! Get, get out ho! Get out Juan Orlando Hernandez, the president. So like, this country has been so brutalized this, which is also not a coincidentally largely indigenous country, has been so brutalized where its indigenous leaders like Berta Cáceres are being murdered by U.S.-backed leaders, and then they're funding and propping up puppets who are smuggling drugs. Meanwhile, democratically elected leftist indigenous leaders who try to just develop their country. I mean, Evo wasn't even... He, this idea that he was like some communist, I mean, he was a very progressive nationalist, but it wasn't like Cuba, where in Cuba they just took all of the wealth of the elite rich, slave owner, colonial class. In Bolivia, it was always a, you know, even like a kind of stereotype, like a bourgeois democracy where he always stood within the lines and abided by the law. And even that was too much for them. And he he was explicitly a democratic socialist, and I I, I emphasize that because 
there's there was this unwillingness almost um, from you know democratic socialists, not all of them in the United States and Canada to to lend um, support, un, you know, uncritical support, or just just to say like this is wrong, or to even understand uh, and celebrate his social gains. Um, you know, we saw like just the smearing of Evo Morales on the left. Um, you know, I call them the gringo left because <laughs> um, they, they do the job. They're basically stenographers for the State Department. They should be getting paid for this because they're doing the job of of the CIA and smearing and smearing Ebo, uh, people like uh, Ebo Morales. But you brought up a really interesting point and um, that was connecting Honduras to Brazil and specifically Lula, um, Lula da Silva, who was just released um, from prison, uh, who was, you know, imprisoned um, on false charges uh, by what we now know um, were, you know, uh, kind of an, a directed, a directed uh, arrest um, by Bolsonaro, people associated with uh, Bolsonaro. Um, but Lula da Silva was released from prison and almost a day later, you know, 48 hours later, um, the the president of Bolivia, the, the indigenous president of Bolivia at gunpoint is, you know, overthrown. Right, um, in a coup d'état, and I think of this as as um, as a revenge uh, of of these kind of not just the Brazilian oligarchs, but the Latin American oligarchs, and and cementing kind of um, a backlash or um, using what they see as a weak link in, in Bolivia to destabilize the region, and specifically what you had brought up earlier about these kind of um these shady characters in these fascists what is the connection to brazil and and bolivia can you hammer that out a little bit yeah for people who want to know the regional alliances in this coup there are a few important countries aside i mean of course the u.s government is involved but also brazil and colombia and then the the right-wing coup forces in venezuela and Brazil is definitely involved in, in a few different ways. So one, a month ago, before the election, there were 16 audio recordings that were leaked. And these audio recordings show opposition members in Bolivia discussing a few different things. One, they discussed how they had support from U.S. officials like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. And other recordings, they talk about Colombia. And then in another recording, they talk about their support from Brazil, and specifically they said that they had support from Bolsonaro and also from the evangelical church, you know, these far-right evangelical forces. And as your listeners, I'm sure, know, in Brazil, Bolsonaro is a complete fascist. I mean, like, he's a textbook fascist. He, he is a strong supporter of the former military dictatorship in Brazil, and has his biggest complaint was that they, they his quote is that they they should have killed and not just tortured. And also he's a, an admirer of the Chilean fascist dictator Augusto Pinochet. And he said that Pinochet's biggest problem was that he didn't kill enough people. And of course, Bolsonaro has been green lighting massacres of the indigenous communities inside Brazil so he can deforest the Amazon. And then so large multinational corporations can use that land to exploit the natural resources, to build houses and resorts. And what's so incredible is to see, you know, you were talking about how some of these these North American environmental groups actually end up dovetailing with imperialist propaganda. And there was this concerted attempt to blame Evo Morales, the indigenous leader, 
or the Amazon fires, well, in Brazil, you have a fascist who called himself Captain Chainsaw and who pledged to destroy the Amazon and destroy indigenous communities. Meanwhile, Evo Morales, for people who actually looked at the, the Spanish language media, would have seen that Evo actually used government money to, to rent the largest plane he could get, this massive plane, and then fill it full of water to put out the fires. Because the Amazon is not just in Brazil, of course. The Amazon crosses over these arbitrary colonial borders into multiple countries. And Evo himself went out with the firefighters and took photos putting out the fire as this symbolic action of helping to protect the Amazon. But because he also at the same time understands that in order to develop your country, that sometimes does involve using gas and lithium and the natural resources you have, he was demonized by these North American so-called leftists. You know, like Naomi Klein called Maduro a petro-populist, this condescending idea that when people in the global south use their natural resources, even if they're doing it responsibly, and yes, they are doing some mining, but they're trying to balance it with other environmental sustainability, uh, these other policies to balance overall and have a net positive, they're still demonized. And it's like, oh, you just have to leave all of your resources in the ground and stay poor and undeveloped. So, I mean... Yeah, and this the same standard doesn't apply to the U.S. Uh, at all. Like, there isn't the same kind of sense of urgency um, for people in the United States to just stop driving cars. And it's like externalizing the the change, you know, like, the, oh, it has to happen somewhere else. And, you know, not even taking into consideration, you know, not just not just like a decade of trying to overthrow somebody like um, Chavez uh, or decades, I should say, and the Bolivarian Revolution uh, or a decade of trying to over, overthrow um, Morales, but centuries of overthrowing and manipulating um, these governments uh, to basically tool their economies um, as, you know, to essentially be export and single commodity economies for the consumption and, and for the benefit of the first world. And it's, it's, it, it fundamentally misunderstands, um, you know, commodity supply chains um, and how the, the extractivist economies work. Like, so in the U.S., for example, um, since the fracking boom in 2007, 2008, they're producing more oil now, and this is part of not just Trump's uh, what he calls um, energy do energy dominance, but it was also part of uh, Obama's plan to essentially drill the United States out of the Great Recession. Um, but they're not drilling oil to for U.S. consumption. They're attempting to strangle um, you know nations like Venezuela uh, and to to essentially get strangle them uh, implement these sanctions so that they can get out their large oil reserves or at least control the flow so now the u.s is exporting now canada is exporting more oil than it can it can consume essentially to choke out these economies and so it i think that this idea of um these petro states uh, misunderstands it because the u.s and canada are actually the petro states <laughs> exactly that's the key point it's and when we're talking about the natural resources in these countries in the global south that imperialist countries want to control it's not just because they want to actually can have access to those resources it's about controlling those resources on the international stage in the in international markets to to maintain their control over the financial system 
And what you're talking about with oil is a perfect example of that, where Saudi Arabia, you know, this is Saudi, they're not Saudi Arabia, they're the Arabian Peninsula. Saudi is the name of the royal family that the British Empire chose to try to create a state, which was effectively a British colony and became an American colony. And the Arabian people are held hostage by this American slash British colony in the region. And in 19... 45 at the end of world war ii during his last valentine's day franklin delano roosevelt famously met with king ibn Saud, and they famously signed a pact where he said we will protect your monarchy and hold you in power in return you give us the oil so we can maintain an international oil market and financial system based on the petrodollar which is sold in the u.s dollar and we can control the prices and then when you have the growth of organizations like OPEC in the 1970s, when countries in the global south try to actually control their own natural resources and use the price of oil in the global market to develop their countries, they face these same kinds of attacks and coups. And then famously, Hugo Chavez, he said, we need to restore power to OPEC because we are we countries in the global south that have these oil resources, we are just as powerful if we can stand up to the empire. But, of course, that's why they're targeted. Um, another point I wanted to say is that you were talking about, you know, we're talking about this issue of mining and indigenous communities. And this is, of course, not new. One of my favorite quotes from Marx is in Capital. And I just got this quote up. It's so good. He said, quote, The discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in mines of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signalized the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist accumulation. And he's pointing out that, you know, these countries, these capitalist countries in the global north, these imperialist countries, they began developing their economies on the extirpation and enslavement and entombment of mines of the indigenous peoples throughout Latin America where the Spanish colonialists, they weren't there. I mean, the, the idea that this idea that colonialists were just there to spread the word of God and, and whatever, and they believed in this white man. No, that's the justification they use to justify committing genocide, murdering these people and stealing their countries and stealing their land and stealing their resources. It's, but then people use that as like the justification, even though, or as the, as the actual motivation, but it's actually the justification. And it's the same, I mean, it's nothing has changed in, in that same dynamic. It, this is, this is, it's neocolonialism in Latin America, where any country in the region that is trying to free itself, and it's not even just Latin America, in the Caribbean, I mean, Haiti's the best example. The first country that overthrew slavery and European colonialism has been punished for 200 years. And for the past several months, yet again, there's been massive protests in Haiti. And the only democratically elected leader in the history of Haiti, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, a progressive leftist, has been overthrown not once, but twice in coups backed by the US. Every time that he comes back into power and he's elected, he gets overthrown. So this is how neocolonialism functions. And unfortunately, Evo Morales is is only the latest example, but it's also the most blatant example because finally there was an indigenous leader 
ex expressly from, I mean, you know, Hugo Chavez and others were partially indigenous, but finally there was a leader who was himself, uh, was from an indigenous community and was part of an indigenous culture. And he's overthrown by European descendant fascists who are burning the flag that he made the dual, the indigenous flag that he made the dual flag of the plurinational state. It's it's the perfect symbol for neocolonialism 500 years after the beginning of European colonialism. Right. And there's almost a, a playbook in, in these kind of regime change efforts, you know, and I think, you know, to just kind of contextualize it, this is coming out of you know the mass protests against uh, Lenin and 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 um, which is an unfortunate name you know <laughs> in Ecuador. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and Spanish people often say Lenin Moreno es un traidor no solo a su país sino también a su propio nombre. That Moreno is not only a traitor to his country but also to his own name. <laughs> exactly, you know, and it was indigenous people who were the front lines of those protests, you know, and they were. Uh, many of them were killed. There was there was dozens of them that were just shot dead, you know, by the police forces. Uh, and Haiti's been um, in a months long protest against these neoliberal policies that are just trying to choke out the country. Um, and you see this, you know, the uprising in Chile with the Mapuche flag being raised um, uh, over these colonial monuments. Uh, and in Argentina, the elections there and Lula being freed and the accusation, you know, I was just in Venezuela and the accusation that, you know, was leveled by CNN and MSNBC, MSNBC was that Maduro uh, was behind all of these things. And all he, and he you know, they, they claimed that all he had to do is like move his mustache. And it was a joke. He was <laughs> making a joke. He was like, I'm not. He's like, I'm not behind these uprisings. He's like, these uprisings are the result of neoliberal policies. They are not the the result of some kind of like clandestine, you know, um, uh, enemy from without or any enemy enemy from the outside infiltrating these groups and making them, you know, overthrow their governments or whatever or demand, you know, f you know, uh, just basic uh, living wages and and dignified lives. But we can go back to 1973. And I think it's important to do this and look at the overthrow of Salvador Allende, who was, um, you know, Latin America's, um, perhaps America's, you know, all of the America, um, first democratic socialist president. And at the time, it's important to remember, people didn't think it was a coup. One, they, they you know, they, they contested the legitimacy of the president by saying that he was operating... Uh, beyond his constitutional mandate, when in fact he was trying to uphold his constitutional mandate and saying the the police forces and the you know the the civic forces of the state weren't obeying the constitution. The second one was that the the right wing fascists said that they were trying to restore democracy, right? And then the third one is to ignore or downplay U.S. involvement. And in each of these instances, there was. A, a a protest there was you know uh, tens of thousands of people who marched um to uh, uh santiago um and and protested against his government and at the time the new york times is just saying you know oh it's a contested it's a contested uh democracy it's a contested you know legitimacy of this of this government and we can look at each of these instances playing out in venezuela um in in um in Brazil recently, you know, with the, the arrest and imprisonment of Lula and now in, in Ebo Morales. And sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't. Um, and I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit on these 
ostensible like what the western media is, is saying these ostensible popular forces that are rising up um against ebo morales because we see you know on social media they're like well i have indigenous friends who are with the opposition and it's like yeah if we look at the u.s congress half of the the native um, congress people are trump supporters of course it's a divided community of course indigenous people would possibly be supporting the opposition you know and i think it's it's immature and this is a loaded question. Now I'm just um, editorializing, <laughs> but I want you to I want you to kind of um, explain that 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 complex process that's happening on the ground because people are saying, well, indigenous people are opposed. You know, they've been opposed to uh, Moss. They've been opposed to uh, Morales, um, and they're they're part of the opposition. Yeah, well, part of it is just honestly a patronizing and frankly racist view of indigenous communities as if they're all the same, as if they're somehow not like other communities. Every community of people has different political differences internally. Like, no, no community is some kind of homogenous block where everyone has the same political views. And also, even talking about the indigenous in Bolivia is misleading because there are dozens of different indigenous communities. And they have different leaders in those communities, and some of them are pro mas some of them are not. But you can, st but it's still absolutely true to say that the majority of indigenous communities in Bolivia support Evo Morales, and there always are going to be exceptions. Just like this, you know, this farce we saw this past week, where you have this group blacks for Trump, and half the people are white. But I mean, it's true that there are black Americans who support this white supremacist president. Um, and, and you know, that's a whole long discussion, but it's this condescending view that all indigenous people have the same political views. And, and even beyond that, look, just because people support a particular political force doesn't mean that that political force is going to serve their interests, right? Evo Morales has, it's not even just the fact that he is indigenous. He has done so many things in terms of his policies to help indigenous communities in Bolivia. First of all, the poverty rate, we should have been stressing this earlier, the poverty rate in Bolivia has been more than halved in just 13 years since he's been in office, significantly. And it's important to keep in mind that that's largely not just in urban areas, but in rural areas, because the way when there are people who support Evo represented in the media, even then there's still often this idea that these are people who live in La Paz. These are people who live in the major cities um, or El Alto, which is like a close, like a, like a sibling city, which is a more working class, poor community. But the majority of Evo's base and Mas's base, because Mas is a social movement that became a party. The majority of the base is in the countryside, is in rural areas with indigenous communities. But if you watch the media in Brazil or CNN in Espanol or, or Telemundo or these other international Spanish language media outlets, almost everyone is from either La Paz or Santa Cruz, the, the major cities. And they are, you know, urban, they tend to be more educated, they tend to be lighter skinned. So even just like the geography of the way that this country is represented is completely skewed because oftentimes, you know, journalists and even many activists and people involved in politics tend to, frankly, they just ignore rural areas and they only think about major cities. And that's, that's including, honestly, people on the left sometimes. They think about, in the case of New York, think about, or in the case of the U.S., they think about New York, L.A., Chicago, uh, you know, but 
in in Bolivia, the majority of this base are people who are in communities that are really detached from each other, that are still living more traditional lifestyles. So that's a reflection of the fact that Morales himself, it comes from that kind of social movement, just like Lula da Silva in, I mean, he wasn't indigenous, but he came in Brazil, he was from the actual working class that he was representing. This is a guy who was raised in a very poor family who, when he was 19 years old, lost one of his fingers in a factory accident. And then he became a labor organizer. And then the Workers' Party was created as a coalition of social movements that created a political arm to try to win political power. That's the same thing that happened in Bolivia. So trying to compare Evo Morales to many of these other leaders is simply not fair because it's just such a mm -hmm. different historical context. Yeah, and Maduro himself was, you know, a bus driver. Um, <laughs> and so, like, these people are coming from working class backgrounds, and many of them are coming from union uh, organize, uh, organizing backgrounds as well. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, and I, I want to kind of think about what is happening right now. Uh, I'm watching videos on um, Twitter and uh, many people are taking to the streets um you can you can clearly distinguish uh who is with um uh the golpistas the regime change um folks the the right-wing opposition because they're only carrying the green red and yellow flags um but you can clearly see that the the pro uh morales forces who are taking to the streets are are flying the wifila the the uh, the indigenous flag and you know ebor morales um has stepped down um and, you know at the point of a gun but nonetheless he he quoted uh, tupac um uh amaru and saying that you know if you kill me i will come back as millions you know and this uh, is i don't think he's being fatalist but he's saying that this isn't over right a resignation in some in some ways and could be interpreted as moving towards re-election or shifting the the kind of um the balance of power to the popular forces to re reclaim democracy where do you see this going well one quick thing that that's a really important historical point about the wafala flag this indigenous flag is that in the 2009 constitution i mentioned which turned bolivia into the plurinational state it also has it recognizes two flags as the official flags of Bolivia, and the Wafala flag is one of the other flags. So that symbolically is so important for the way that Morales turned Bolivia into a country where the indigenous communities are part of the fabric of governance and are not just voting constituencies for the left to win. Um, but to answer your other question, you know, it's, it's hard to tell the future, of course, but what we are seeing is a massive uprising. And, of course, like you said, many of these people rising up are indigenous and poor and working class. But what's also important to point is that it's not just in the indigenous communities, even parts of these urban centers, there are masistas, there are people who support Morales and the socialist movement. So very much the opposition is divided. I mean, of course, they lost the election. And this is another point that's not even being stressed, which is so crazy to me, is that even if you dispute the fact that Morales won by the 10.5% that he won by in the first round, I mean, 
the Center for Economic and Policy Research, which is an excellent think tank in D.C., one of the only real good think tanks, and has good economists who are fair economists and who aren't, you know, neoliberal capitalist propagandists. They did a statistical analysis of the voting data, which is publicly available from Bolivia, and they showed mathematically, I mean, just objectively, that that he did actually win the first round with about 10.5% of the votes. This idea, there was this myth spread by the opposition that the voting stopped for a few hours and then they came back and he had one more vote. That's not true. That, that's a myth that's, that's been spread that's false. Anyway, so, but even if you, taking that aside, even if you dispute the fact that Morales didn't get the necessary 10% threshold to win in the first round, he still won the election. No one disputed the fact that he still got 600,000 more votes. So at the very least, it would have to go to a runoff election. But, and, and to be fair, Evo actually said, look, Evo has been saying at every level, I want to avoid violence. I don't want a serious situation. I don't want a civil war. If you, if people refuse to acknowledge the fact that I won, fine, we will go to a new round. And he, in the morning of the coup on Sunday, he said, fine, we can go to a new election. And what was the response of the right-wing opposition backed by the U.S.? He said, okay, fine, a new election, but you can't be a candidate. So that shows that they don't care about democracy. That's the pretext. You talked about the example of Chile with Salvador Allende. It's not about democracy. They don't care about democracy. They want to recolonize these countries and restore the right-wing capitalist elites who will privatize everything, who will ignore the indigenous communities and just and remove them from political life and return back to this these kind of neo-colonies that they turn Honduras into. And then, of course, with with the people rising up right now, they're facing violence from the state, which which wants them to just go away and never come back. And there was a video posted on the night of the coup, Sunday night, of some of these popular defense forces, these people who have taken up arms to defend their communities and defend their democracy. And there has been videos of some fighting between them and the coup forces. So this is exactly what Evo was trying to avoid, is he didn't want a war. And it looks like if there is going to be conflict, it's because the right-wing opposition refuses to actually abide by the democratic majority and they're only using that as a as a pretext like always yeah and like even in the example of um chile you know the these kind of civilian uh forces that aligned with elements of you know the the national guard i think they were called the carbonistas the uh it was kind of like this police force that had turned against pinochet um when they created that vacuum by knocking out heads of state and by knocking out kind of the central authority of the of the government, they created a vacuum. And Pinochet stepped in and said, I'm not going to step down after this. And this is the danger of this particular moment right now. There's a there's a political vacuum that has been created in Bolivia, and that's what's making it so dangerous. And I know there's all these opinions on the left about what should, you know, counterfactuals of what Evo Morales and Moss should have done. But it's 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 not helpful in this particular moment. It's actually really dangerous because you're providing the ammunition um, for these right-wing forces to step in and to say, we are going to provide law and order, right? We are going to provide the alternative that's needed to bring this country back together. And what is that alternative? 
it's the violence of neoliberalism and opening up like what you just said all they, they want to go back right they want to go back to the halcyon days of the settler european oligarchy and we can see that happening in venezuela right now you know um guaycapo uh, i think or um i think that's his name was a yeah guaycapo was a, an indigenous leader um, you know, who is now being celebrated um, by the Bolivarian Revolution because they began to own and to grasp their own um, history of resistance, as as Hugo Chavez said, you know, he's like, I have uh, African and indigenous blood flowing through my veins, you know, the two kind of um, the heartbeats of resistance in the in the in Nuestra America, our America, and they toppled the colonial statues, they toppled Columbus, they renamed you know, Columbus Square, the Bolivarian Square, they they took down those statues and they put up indigenous leaders. And now the right wing opposition in, in Venezuela is trying to reverse those gains, that that process of decolonization. And that's what that's what I think we're seeing right now in, in Bolivia is an attempt to reverse the gains, the historic gains and the arrival of indigenous people in history to say, you know, not only is Evo Morales the leader of this this country and the president of this country, but he's a he is the standard bearer for indigenous socialists in the hemisphere and across the world. He was the first indigenous head of state to oversee the permanent forum on indigenous issues. That is historic, right? And so we we can't forget not just the social gains that he has um, implemented in the rev in this kind of revolutionary process i would call it revolutionary in many ways because it came from the ground up um but also symbolically he represented a step forward for indigenous people and now what we're seeing is we're seeing that violent reaction against it exactly i mean you per you put it perfectly is that, that that's exactly the goal is recolonization of the americas and a few different points to respond to there first of all this idea that people in the global north should just, especially leftists in the global north who have never come anywhere close to power, should lecture people in the global south who have had progressive revolutionary movements in political power for decades and have extremely wide support and have made huge accomplishments for their people. What, what, it's, think about the kind of colonial arrogance of some left self-declared leftists living in like new york or la or whatever lecturing evo morales on what he should have done i mean what you should have done is stop your government from overthrowing him we, you, you can't even do that i mean and this is self-criticism for me too i mean the left in the in the global north is very weak and and a lot of the left you know my life goal has been to to center anti-imperialism as the, the primary contradiction of understanding how capitalism functions in in the era of of late capitalism. I mean, Lenin called it the highest stage of capitalism because imperialism is the way that capitalism expresses itself in this stage of monopoly capital. And especially when you look at the legacy of European colonialism and the way that, that capitalism was birthed through European colonialism, these things are all inextricably tied. But there's this idea of people in the global north who, who are obsessed with this idea of ideological purity. And they're like, oh, Evo Morales wasn't socialist enough and he has a mixed economy. And it's like, you can't even win an election. He won an election and governed an entire country and transformed it for years. And then he tried to 
continue governing and, and expand the revolution and then you call him a dictator or you help spread propaganda i mean it's it's worse than useful being a useful idiot i mean it's just it's really arrogant and and another quick point i was going to say is that you mentioned simon bolivar and the importance of reclaiming that indigenous history in in venezuela now what's interesting there is that it's actually kind of it's the opposite of white jesus it's incredible where you know european colonialists if you go if you go back and you look even at eastern orthodox christianity in like slavic countries that you know whiteness is is an evolving political construct but you know maybe what some westerners might so-called westerners might consider white although you know now apparently R russians and slavs have been kind of uh, have like lost their whiteness because of this like Russiagate ridiculous nonsense. But, but, but whatever. If you actually look back at like some Eastern Orthodox paintings and stuff, Jesus was presented correctly as someone who was dark skinned because he was from the Middle East. And what's interesting is that as as Europeans and North Americans whiten Jesus, Venezuelans have done the opposite to Bolivar, where Simon Bolivar the the, known as the, the great liberator of Latin America, who led a war against Spanish colonialism 200 years ago and then united parts of modern-day Venezuela, Colombia, Bolivia. The name, the name of the country Bolivia is named after Simón Bolívar. He, he himself was mestizo. He was a mix of indigenous and European and rebelled against the colonial elite. And... What's interesting is if you look at pr presentations of Simon Bolivar in Venezuela, they always emphasize his partial indigenous heritage. He always has dark skin. His hair is always dark. And I actually have a, a, a hat, a, a hat of leftist leaders in Latin America. I'm actually holding it right here. And it has Hugo Chavez. It has Fidel Castro, Che, Bolivar, Correa of Ecuador. And it has all these leaders, and it has Morales, Evo Morales, of course. And every single person on there has dark brown skin, which is funny because, you know, Fidel, Fidel was also from a mixed family. You know, his, his ancestors were partially Spanish, and he was lighter skinned. And of course, Che and Bolivar were kind of lighter skinned. But the left in Venezuela, has which is largely darker skinned, has reclaimed that and has actually taken these historical figures like Bolivar and Fidel and stressed their partial indigenous heritage and made them darker as a form of empowering their their community. So I, I think that's really beautiful. And actually, it's a sign of how and it is a sign of what these right wing elites are afraid of. They don't want pr pride in indigenous heritage because they know that the majority of the people in their countries are of partially indigenous, partially African ancestry. And if they're proud of their their ancestors and their history of struggle, they might overthrow their current light-skinned elite oligarch leaders. Exactly. And I think like che, somebody like Che Guevara, you know, really represents the the kind of revolutionary, not just Latin American tradition, but I'll say American and I mean American and you know my my Venezuelan comrades reminded me of this. There is no Americas. There's one America, Nuestra America, our America. And he really represented that revolutionary tradition because he went to Africa 
and he fought in Angola. He fought for liberation there. He became African, right? And he died in Bolivia and he became Bolivian. And so what I understand from, you know, and I'm still learning a lot about this. This is all new for me. Um, what I'm learning about this is that all people born in this, in this hemisphere step into the stream of history, either um, the, the, the stream of history that represents the ancestors of resistance going back to the first maroon colonies that overthrew their slave masters or ran away or escaped or married into indigenous communities and became relatives and became comrades in struggle, or even the white, you know, um, the white Europeans who allied with, um, you know, the, the Haitians, uh, the, or the, the African slaves in the Haitian revolution, um, that this is a, a part of a larger stream of revolutionary history and that Ebo Morales represents one of those ancestors. He himself is, you know, has pushed um, history forward because he represents that indigenous element. And he's not shying away. He's not a separatist, right? He's not somebody who's saying that indigenous identity is exclusive unto itself, but it's part of a larger um, revolutionary tradition in, in, in uh, what we know as uh, Nuestra America, Pachamama or uh, Abiala, you know, the, that this is part of the real tradition of resistance. And I think that's something that we should all be proud about. And no matter what, you know, the outcome of this particular um, scenario is, is, and I think he said it, you know, best is like, if you kill me, you will only create millions. And this is every, you know, revolutionary in history, even if they weren't killed, they create, they reproduce themselves because they were part of that stream of history. Um, and so I, I think it's a good place to leave it there. And I just want to say, um, you know, thanks for coming on and, and speaking with us and sharing your knowledge. And where can people find you? Well, I tweet a lot. You can find me at Benjamin Norton. Um, tweet too much, honestly. And I also help run an investigative journalism website called The Gray Zone. And you can find that at thegrayzone.com. That's gray with an A. And I'll say everyone who's listening should support the work Nick's doing in the Red Nation because you all, I mean, I said on Twitter recently, and I, I want to repeat it because I think it's 100% true, that the work you all are doing is so incredibly important that honestly, the Red Nation is one of the most important organizations in the world because what the settler colonial U.S. regime fears more than anything else is an independent anti-imperialist socialist organization in the belly of the settler colony that is making these international links with other indigenous struggles and other struggles of oppressed nations in the global south. And of course, we saw how the U.S. government viciously repressed, brutally repressed the American Indian movement. And I think in many ways you all are following in the footsteps and I'm, I'm honored. I'm very glad to, to call you all friends and comrades. And I look forward to the work you all be doing. All right. Thanks so much, Ben. We appreciate it. Yeah. And, and if I may, I'll, I'll end with one final quote here. One of my favorite quotes from Evo Morales. He said, uh, Ser indígena y ser de la izquierda antiimperialista es nuestro pecado. He said, to be indigenous and to be part of the anti-imperialist left is our crime. That that's, is exactly why he was overthrown. Yeah, that's the tattoo on all of our hearts right now. Okay. <laughs> Great. Thanks all right, so man. Yeah, thanks. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Um, 
Oh, he's he's back. <laughs> Wait, Cena's here? Yeah, he was here. We were having a bromance, and you were here the entire time. <laughs> All right, so that was the Red Nation podcast with special guest Ben Norton and updating about the situation in Bolivia. I learned a lot during that episode. So I'm going to just play some music on our way out, and we'll be back next week. Thanks to Pam for coming in and playing this again on uh, Friday. If you're listening live, uh, stay tuned for House of Pride Radio, which is coming up next at 6 p.m. here at Mutiny Radio. We'll continue by playing some more from Gang of Four, and we'll be back next week. Have a great week, everybody. assist you with your damaged gear.
Law Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced. And it's Art Alive in the Mission, Bender's Bar and Grill. Hi, welcome to My Limited View. I am your host, Sergio Navoa. And I'm your co-host, Vanessa Wilkins. Join us every Tuesday from 12 to 2 at muniradio.fm as we share stories, our personal stories. And struggles and challenges. And we'll also have guests come in and share their stories. And hopefully through all this, we can expand our view. Or your view. Yes, and there'll be plenty of dick jokes, so don't worry. It's not always going to be heavy. Yeah, I might even share black hair tips. Black hair tips, don't. <laughs> anything about it sorry all on my limited view yes every tuesday from 12 to 2 uh oh you can if you can also find us on apple Podcasts. oh yeah and google play and stitcher itunes oh you already said that tune in radio uh stitcher you said that spotify oh my god there's just so many and overcast um, yes, you can also find us on social media, M as in Mary, L as in Larry, P as in Peter, podcast, MOV podcast is our handle. Until next time, I hope you're enjoying your view. Yes. Bye. Bye. That, that kind of sucked balls. My friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for near five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live. It's 8 o'clock! Yay! It's Friday night. It's time for Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse here on Mutiny Radio. Yes, I am wearing the cheerleading costume I wore in high school. Why am I doing that? Well, this is the show that's about funny body issues and being made fun of if you're too skinny or too fat or too whatever. And I have a cheer for it. Here we go. Give me a K! Give me an I! Myself! Yay! I was never gonna be good enough. I was too fat. No! 
No, this is my actual high school cheerleading costume from 1991. When it, it, 1991, 2019, 28 years ago. And I wore this exact costume and I thought I was fat. <laughs> I think that's funny now. I think that's laughable. Because I really, I wore this same costume and it's like, I'm a fat piece of shit. I'll never be good enough. Like, what what kind of messages was I getting from the world? Uh-huh. Uh, I'll, I'll do a little origin story about my uh, eating disorder issues. When I was in kindergarten, I had a teacher at a Christian school. Isn't that lovely that the Christian story, isn't it nice? And I had a teacher and I was in kindergarten and we all memorized Bible verses and you get up to the front of the room and you'd say your Bible verse and everyone would get an ice cream cone and I went up and I said my Bible verse and I got graham crackers and then my teacher said fat little girls never get anywhere in the world you're a fat little girl oh that's why and everyone licked their ice cream cones and I ate my graham crackers and they had the same amount of calories <laughs> like you fucking mean bitch the ice cream cone and the graham crackers same calories cool. And then, and then when I was in second grade, I remember being in this moment in vacation Bible school where I was sitting on a chair and I put my toes up so that no one could see my thighs smash and be so gross and fat. Ah, I was like in second or third grade. And then I saw this amazing episode of different strokes. And it was so incredible because Dana Plato, it was her birthday and she got a birthday cake and she ate the whole thing. And then she threw up and I was like, we can just do that? That's amazing. We can just throw up all the time. Yay! I love Dana Plato, different strokes. Oh, wait, that was fiction. I was supposed to learn a lesson, not learn about bulimia. Yay! Cool. So that's my origin story. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, this is a cute little fact I learned today. 9% of nine-year-olds in the United States have thrown up because they think they're too fat. What? It's so crazy because we live in America when one third of our people are like medically obese. And then we've got kids that are like, I'll never be good enough. I have to be better than my mom. We have 25 million hoarders. We have all of these diseases that are made out of excess. I just don't get it. Like, we eat, we have too much. Oh, and like, and I was bulimic and wanted to kill myself as a high schooler because white girls don't have any other issues. Like, I was so rich that I had to like hate myself. Yay. So cool. I just, I'm so confused that like, I'm so confused that uh, we have so many oh, horrible things. I mean, remember when Michelle Obama was here and she hated fat kids? Wasn't that great? She was so cool about it. She was like, she was like, oh, work out, kids, and we're gonna have healthy school lunches with like healthy foods and less salt, and let's work out together, yay! And I was like, that's so cool, Michelle. I miss you so much because I wondered about our new. Uh, first lady, Melania, 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 how do we pronounce her name? Melania. Melania, yeah, Melania. I don't know because she never talks. Like, I don't know what her voice sounds like or what her name is. But, it, and I would think like, at, at, nobody listens to you unless you're skinny and pretty. She is so skinny and pretty. Say something, <laughs> anything, something. 
what's like your first lady thing to stand up for and talk about, right? And I thought that she would plagiarize Michelle and just hate fat kids too, right? And But she'd do it in a different way. She's going to teach the kids, you know, um, how to, I think, champion bulimia because it makes kids four times the consumer, right? Like they consume four times the food and then they're better for the economy. I think that Melania is going to really be known as an environmentalist because she's going to teach the children to vomit into the composting. You know, regurgitate, renew, recycle. We're going to use all of that compost for the wine vines in Napa because that acidic vomit, it's going to be so good. The acidic compost is going to be really good for that 2019 Pinot. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be great. Thank you, Melania, for helping the wine industry. That's the thing is it's all industry. There's so much industry that's based off our lack of self-esteem, right? Like, ladies, <laughs> right? Makeup, what? Like, I wasn't wearing makeup for a long time and I was calling myself a feminist, but then I, my friends gave me some um, $18 lip liner from MAC and I was like, wow, I'm just not wearing makeup because I'm poor. I'm poor, this is a class issue. This has nothing to do with me being a feminist. I just can't afford makeup. It's, friends gave me makeup, I'm like, oh, I can be pretty too, yay! Just so much of our economy. You know, Gillette, 1904. That's when Gillette showed up, right? When dudes used to, they used to be prided by the size of their beard because that meant that they were a great farmer and they were helping America and they were amazing. And then all of a sudden, if you didn't shave off your face, you were a poor farmer. And it was like, what are you doing? Be part of the industrialized America. Body odor's a thing now. That didn't exist. Like everyone just smelled funny, but like, no, you gotta wear, you gotta do something. So men had to shave their beards. Gillette, the best man can get. Right, remember? And and like women couldn't even show their legs. Do you remember the time when if you showed your ankle, you were a dirty slut? Remember that in 1904? And now, if we don't shave from our big toe to our twat like a four-year-old girl, we're a disgusting slut. <laughs> Nobody wants to sleep with gross. Why don't you shave? Gillette, the best a man can get. Yeah, I don't, I actually shaved my legs this morning for the first time in like five months and it was like I murdered a baby squirrel. It was, it was, I didn't even do it in my shower because I was worried about like clogging up the whole works. So I did it on my couch, like with like throwing the hair away in a responsible way. I made it into a small cat toy and threw it to my cat. He's like, ah, I love your leg hair. It's good. Uh, yay. Gillette. Did you guys know about the new Gillette razor? Do you hear about it? 17 blades for the closest shave, <laughs> right? So many blades. The 13th blade is easily removable, so you can slit your throat in the shower because you'll never be good enough. <laughs> never. Gillette, the best a man can get. I'll never be good enough. This is, yeah, exactly. Well, no, when I was a child, like I really was super affected by like body image. I was super bulimic for many, many years. And I just find it so funny because I really was tiny. <laughs> I was like exactly the same size as I am now. And I'm like, you dumb bitch. Why did you listen to the male gaze? I don't understand why I wasn't listening to the male gaze. I walked down the street today. I got so many comics from the comments from the male and female gaze. I finally understand catcalling, right? Because I have a 
cat, and I kiss at my cat all the time. Sir, don't come here, sir. He never comes. Like, it doesn't work. Cat calling doesn't work. The cat never comes. Like, it just, he doesn't. He'll stretch out on the floor, and I want to touch him, and all of his eight nipples are showing, and I'm like, you are a stripper, and I want to touch you. And I get super close to him, and then he's also the bouncer. He's like, don't you touch my nipples. I'm like, oh, I was asking for consent. Like, I don't know in cat language what consent is. But walking down the street today, I got so many like comments. Uh, one guy, he said, girl, you've been living a long time to look 22. And I was like, that's a compliment. That's not catcalling. That's a compliment. That was great. I felt really good about it. It was fine with me. It's like, you can, you can say that on the street to me. I like that. Uh, but another gentleman uh, said, you got a nice fit on today. And I said, that I, I am fit and I have an outfit. That works, double entendre in cat call, like it. And then he said, cute skirt, can I get under there and get a sniff? What? We just changed from compliment to cat call really quickly. Also, that's kind of gross. Why do you want to smell my boyfriend's cum, you weirdo? That's kind of gay. That's kind of weird, man. I don't know why you want to smell that shit. You don't want to get under there. It's not cool. Cool. So I did, I did used to have a lot of like tons of eating disorder issues and I thought I was fat and I thought I was skinny and then I thought I was, and now I'm like, yay, everything is fine. Why are we all freaking out? But this really is a big issue in the United States when we have so many problems. But one of them also happens to be that one out of every four women has eating disorders. So that was interesting to me. And also that when I put this show out and I was like, hey, who has body dysmorphia issues or who's been made fun of for these things? Guys? came up to me and I was like this isn't this wow I feel like so closeted that dudes have this issue too I feel kind of like a jerk and but it's I mean that's real like guys can be too skinny because you're not big enough you're not manly enough but girls have to be so tiny and why aren't you more like a tiny squirrel and like what's wrong with you I don't know 90210 fucked me up anybody else <laughs> I grew up in Danville here with the San Ramon Valley yeah uh, and everyone was so perfect that we just didn't even have a scale anymore. It just got so strange. Anyways, this this isn't funny. I'll leave you guys with one of my favorite cheers because I was a cheerleader for God. There is only one God. Andy is the sun God. Raw, raw, raw. Yeah, right? That's a good one. Yeah. I was a Christian cheerleader, and the only thing that sucked about being a Christian cheerleader is the skirts were really long, which were not sexy, uh, and then my butt always hurt from protecting my virginity. Also, <laughs> not sexy. <laughs> it was not something I wanted to deal with. All right, let's let's get into this shit tonight. I'm so excited you're here. We usually we sing a song before we start. If you know how it goes, sing along with me. M-U-T-I-N-Y, comedy, clubhouse, comedy, clubhouse. comedy. Clubhouse. Together we will bring our jokes up high, 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 high. We got a bong back there if anybody wants a hit. We totally have a station bong and tons of weed, so it's totally fine. M-U-T-I-N-Y, comedy, clubhouse. You want to come inside my clubhouse? Yeah. Yay! I'm so excited. 
excited because I have no idea what's going to happen tonight. But I, I am, like, I love these themed shows. Also, yay, I, I know, there's so much fun because we get to do material that we wouldn't normally do. And, like, who talks about eating disorders or not even eating disorders? This isn't even about eating disorders. I had an eating disorder because those are my body issues. But tonight is, like, about people who are, like, wicked, super tall and skinny and being made fun of for that or being anything that the world expects you to be, but you're like, I'm not, and then how do I, and why am I not good enough? Or whatever, it's going to be fun. We're going to have a good time. Yay, we're all here. Um, I didn't make a list because I'm a terribly unorganized person, so do you guys want to, like, mad dog each other who know who are on the show? You guys don't even know who are on the show, actually, which is funny. <laughs> like, do the people on the show want to, or do any people are like, oh, I feel the need to go first. They're, ah, is anybody's, like, cute belly? Like, look, you can't even tell. Was that? All right. Hey, you guys. Your first comedian. She is a lovely human being. She's the one, actually, the reason that I started the theme of the show is that she was hosting at um, the now defunct Sad Face uh, Hotel Utah. And I, you were doing jokes about being so skinny on stage. And I was like, wow, like, she's had it rough. And I, as a child, would have dreamed to be you because you're like wicked super tall and you weigh like you're like ounces and like the thigh gap is so gorgeous. Like you've got this fucking thigh gap. I could like stick my head. I could put three kittens in your thigh gap. Like I can imagine if I that would have been today's thing. If I could have made a fonto, a picture of you, if I could Photoshop three kittens in your thigh gap. Put your hands together, everybody, for Gaula Finman. Is it working? Are we in? I kind of feel like I'm at a white supremacist rally. <laughs> like, are we okay? Are we allowed to be here gathering for thinness? <laughs> like, we are the supreme body type. <laughs> Give it up for thinness, you guys. That's what we're celebrating. <laughs> we'll make it complicated. <laughs> you know, if we haven't met yet, uh, my name is Gaula. Uh, People are like, did you get that name at Burning Man? <laughs> In a sense, my parents created our very own Burning Man. They had a wild time. They had seven of us. They went crazy with the names. I'm the fifth girl. They were like, first baby, girl. Sivia, Bracha, Hindi, Adel. Finally, their fifth disappointment. Let's call her Gaula. And then the boy came along, Alex. And they were just like, hello, Alex. Welcome to society. This is capitalism. That's the moment we're in now. Go enjoy it. Oh, ladies. <laughs> well, you're going to have to explain yourselves all the time, wherever you go, in an artistic way. <laughs> and so here I am, talking to you guys about the dark side of being skinny. Is there a dark side? We'll find out. But it's like, I don't, <laughs> I don't need to like stare at myself in the mirror to be like, this is what I look like. I mean, we do it. We all, we all fucking do it. But people will tell us, you know. It's like I was in the bathroom the other day, washing my hands, and some, how's that for you? <laughs> and I hear like clicking. Somebody came in and they're like, oh, uh, am I in the wrong restroom? Because they see this. And I'm like, oh no, just the wrong decade. <laughs> It's like, I know I'm six feet tall, very skinny, no boobs, totally flat chested, and I like a good barbershop experience. 
to anyone else. But um, I'm on my period, and my nipples are really sore. So this is also my bathroom. <laughs> when you're skinny, you have really small boobs, usually, unless you get a boob job, right? I uh, Well, there's some exceptions. I have a friend that um, took all her like life-saving. She was always kind of self-conscious about her boobs. Anyone else ever like a period where the dudes do? Felt weird about your boobs, body weirdness. She had like a little small one. This is my small one, and this is my big one. Anyone else? <laughs> and she was like, I want to fix that because it's been, it's been hurting me. People have said mean things to me. And she finally had $10,000. I was like, you know what? If I had 10 grand to do anything, I'd maybe just accept my boobs and just start a movement. Hashtag diverse titty. You know, just like one big one, one little one. It's not such a big deal. But like, you guys, Ladies, men, people tell you what you look like. Like, I pissed off a guy at a bar the other day because he was like, I don't know if I can call you pretty. Hi, talking about being beautiful. <laughs> and you guys are all beautiful. There's some chairs over here. You can sit on the floor if you don't want to make it hard for anyone or me while I'm doing my set. This is great. No, this is great. Yeah, they're all cute. It's great. Just like a thin what, supremacist group, just loading them in. <laughs> nice, thin people united against curves. <laughs> yeah, what am I going to talk about? Um, yeah, I was talking about. Yeah, so this I was in I was in a, a bar and this guy got really pissed at me. He's like, I don't know if I can call you pretty. Hmm. or handsome, you know? And I'm just like, oh, that's so hard for you. <laughs> you don't know what to do with this. It's so hard for you. Look, well, the non-gendered word I think you're looking for, sir, is ugly. <laughs> you think I'm ugly and you're pissed that I'm the only thing left in this bar for you to sexually harass. <laughs> Am I opening the channels of skinny and ugly right now, y'all? People will pick it up later. Look, if you sleep with me, that doesn't make you gay. <laughs> Dudes. <laughs> If you're begging for a pegging in your booty, <laughs> you're teetering, okay? <laughs> okay, true story. <laughs> yeah, what am I gonna talk about? Um, I was doing this, what I'm doing right now, I was looking down, walking down the street in San Francisco, and some guy goes, a competent and pretty woman should never look down. And I'm like, how do, first of all, how do you know I'm pretty? I could look real fucked up and have no teeth. I'm looking down. You don't see this fucking face. I got you. They're fine. Everything's fine up here, too. But I was looking down because I, as Pam mentioned, was admiring my thigh gap. You can fit three cats in this thigh gap, according to Pam. Three little kittens would be happy in there. This is a portal. This is where all my self-worth lives, everybody. Hello. <laughs> Sometimes during the day, I just like to remind myself <laughs> of my worth, <laughs> a portal to possibility. <laughs> I worked hard for that. You know, I was walking down the street, and I'm a nanny, and I was pushing the baby, and a woman came up to me with a very inferior stroller to the one I use. And I work for really rich people. There's an upper baby, okay? And uh, she's like, you, you are so thin for just having had a baby. Ah, excuse me, I need, and I was just like, I don't want her to get close. <laughs> and I was like, 
I'm a nanny, you created life, have a nice day. And I like turned down a street I didn't need to go on to like run away from the mom that felt fat. And I was just like, I didn't want her to come close to me. I didn't want her to notice how haggard I am and that this thinness isn't coming from like Gwyneth Paltrow styled self-care and health. I do nothing to deserve this. I have wide hips and I don't gain weight here and I just have a thigh gap, okay? I eat whatever. I, I did have an eating disorder for like a summer when I was 15 because Nicole Richie told me I was fat, right? Like <laughs> that, that was the times. And then I like realized what a body mass index was. I was like, I'm an 18.5, anything less is clinically anorexic and skinny, so I gotta just face the facts. I'm a fucking skinny bitch with some fucking thigh gap. And then Kim Kardashian came on the scene that second made me hate myself for not having curves. So what do we do, ladies? <laughs> just fucking, we surrender, you know? <sighs> to eat, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. So, my thigh gap and my thinness actually comes from having, I don't have an eating disorder, but I have Marfan syndrome. Does anyone know what that is? Yeah, it's a genetic disorder. Affects your 15th chromosome. It makes you legally blind. You can have scoliosis, and you can drop dead of a heart attack at the age of 35. But people, it also gives you thigh gap. <laughs> so if I want to rock on the tenderloin for the next five years until I drop dead, just taking what God has given me, I'm going to fucking do that. <laughs> Nobody's as tall as, there's no people with Marfans in here, right? Because I would, I just want to like, if there was, we could just shake hands and I could just stay on the stage at Mutiny Radio. <laughs> we could just shake hands and then I'd like pull you on the stage because I want to start a mutant army. <laughs> Anyone with any kind of mutated disorders, we could just fucking take over the world. First rule, nothing happens before noon because we're fucking sleepy. Naps all the time. <laughs> we could just sloth our way into success, you know? Just fucking take over the world by doing less. <laughs> Those are my people. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think that is all I have to talk about. Um, so give it up for your incredible host and babe cheerleader, Pam Benjamin. Clap harder for Kahula's thigh gap. My God. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, I, I did shave my legs, I said, for the first time in five months, so that's lovely. But I only shaved up to my knee, so I have no idea what the rest of it looks. I didn't shave my, this is, it might look like a spider is running across my legs. But no, that's just my pubic hair. I have, I have so much pubic hair, it looks like a hair skirt. Like, I'm, I'm not nervous to be naked in front of people. I, I have pubic hair that's so long and old, it's been around longer than many comedians have been doing comedy. <laughs> it's like three-year-old pubic hair. Like, I want to keep it. One of them today, like, really came out, fing, like, it really came out, fing, and it was super silver, and I, like, kind of tugged on it for a minute, and I was like, no, I'm just going to let you stay there. <laughs> like, I feel like there's a lot of power in that silver, fing. Cool. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna let society make me trim my pubes. <laughs> love, ah, there's power in the pubes, baby. Okay. 
I, I hope your next comedian has pubic hair. Let's bring up a, do guys have pubic hair? They, have they lasered it off yet? Have guys done it too? Like is everybody so against pubic hair that they're like, you have to laser your balls now. Is that happening? Are dudes lasering their balls? I don't, I don't watch porn. I have no idea what's happening. Um, I, I don't. Do they, do they laser, do, are there, does anyone have a shorn scrotum? Is that, I don't know. It's waxing. Males wax their balls? Now that's amazing because I'm afraid to wax because of the pain. But wow, on the ball sack. I thought men, I, I mean, if men can do that with their ball sacks, they might actually be able to handle childbirth. That's amazing. I'm impressed with millennials now. They're like into the pain. Let's get it done. Uh, all right. Uh, let's bring up your next comedian. Where I see him back there. Damn, Dan, are you ready? What? Uh, I believe he might have been a diminutive boy uh, that might have been made fun of for his non-large size. I'm just guessing. Unless you were like this tall since you were seven. I don't know how that works. Put your hands together, everybody. For Dan Aganaga. Yeah. It's a funny story. I used to be 6'4". <laughs> it's, it's, something happened. I don't know. Uh, no, but thank you very much, Pam, for that intro. Uh, I love it how you say my name correctly. I think you're the only person who could say my name correctly. It's Agi Naga. Agi Naga. Kind of sounds Japanese, right? A little bit, right? The weird thing about that name is some people even expect to see a Japanese person after they hear that name, which once made for uh, quite the awkward job interview. This actually happened. Yeah, I guess HR didn't do their homework, thought they were gonna be interviewing someone Asian, and then I show up, and they realize they're interviewing someone lazy. <laughs> nah, I'm just kidding, I'm Caucasian. Uh, I'm very Caucasian, I've, st I've started to realize. Like, I'm like water polo white, you know? Like, I look like someone put a water polo player in the dryer. Like, essentially, that's, that's essentially what I look like. Now, speaking of that, um, this happened to me last week in Oakland. I work in Oakland and I was walking on the street and a kid points to my face and goes, yo, you got the face of the Stanford rapist. Can you believe that? He thought I was still in college. <laughs> still got it. Little cutie was just paying me a compliment. No, I am very young looking for my age. I'm 33 years old. Pam, you think I look like 23 or something like that? And it translates back all the way to high school when I was, so I'm 33, I look 23, so when I was 13, I looked like a fetus, I guess. <laughs> that was actually my nickname in high school, no joke, it was fetus. Yeah, I was so little, I was five foot one, I weighed 97 pounds, and about 96 of those pounds was all in my head. <laughs> I had a really big head, my head hit puberty before my body, I looked like a walking lollipop, it was awful. Uh, I looked like Mr. Garrison if he was shorter, yeah. Um, and it was uh, it was tough. It, it, I miss those days though when bullies would, you know, say mean things to your face. You know, now you don't have that anymore. Now they're just hiding behind a screen. <laughs> you know, the good old days. Yeah. Bullies made fun of you for weird things back then. Obviously for what you looked like, but also, I don't know if anyone relates to this, bullies would make fun of you if you didn't know about something. Because Google didn't exist, right? <laughs> Seriously, and usually it was always like slang related. I remember my, uh, this bully named Lori Yates, that's his real name. Uh, he went up to me and he, he totally fooled me. He goes, hey Dan, you're not straight, are you? 
And he said it like that, right? So he set me up. And I was 12 years old. I didn't know what straight was. I was like, no. He's like, you're gay. You're gay. I'm like, <laughs> just like wanted to kill myself after that. Back then, yeah, nowadays, if that would have happened, I would be like, excuse me, Lori. I have to go to the bathroom. And then just look up what straight meant. Come out and be like, hey, Lori. I am straight. I'm straight as a motherfucker. And then just been done. All right, let's move on from that. Um, no, so uh, I'm a, what you would call a late bloomer. That's That was what kind of was responsible for how I looked in high school. Uh, I feel like late bloomer is just a nice way of saying your body is lazy. You know? Because, like, I didn't want to be a late bloomer. My body decided to be a late bloomer. I wanted to grow pubes. If it was up to me, I wanted to grow pubes when I was, like, six. But... <laughs> And I think the reason why my body held back for so long is because it knew once I'd hit puberty, I would just like abuse the shit out of it. <laughs> right? Because think about it. Like before puberty, that's like the honeymoon period between you and your body, right? The worst thing you could do to your body before puberty is like what? Scrape your knee from playing outside? Now, after I hit puberty, I, you know, fill it up with drugs and alcohol and fucking yank on my pecker for probably twice a day. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if my body and I were in a relationship, it would have left me a long time ago. Yeah, when I pulled out the Purell to jerk off with, I think that was, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, that actually happened too. I was like, yeah, it's wet. It'll be fine. <laughs> nope, felt, my dick felt radioactive. <laughs> yeah, it was like if Spider-Man got bit on the wiener. Uh, Anyways, yeah, my lazy body. Uh, there was um, a pro, though. I, I, so I hated going through the awkward phase. It was really painful for me. Uh, but about five years ago, uh, I kind of got over it, finally, because there was an article that came out in the New York Post about a priest at a, a prestigious Catholic school in New York, that's where I'm from, uh, who molested a bunch of kids for decades. And this priest, I know this priest very well. I was actually an altar boy at this school. We had hung out a bunch of times. And guys, during those two years I was an altar boy, not once did he try to fuck me. Not once. So, my awkward phase saved me from getting molested. That's how ugly I was. I was so ugly, the pedophile looked at me and goes, mm, let's wait. Let's wait, let's let him develop a little bit. Uh, fuck off. <laughs> oh, man, I was obsessed. With, so I was a late bloomer. All my friends, like, their bodies were just like, yeah, pew, 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 pew. And, and my body was just like, mm, snooze. Uh, and it sucked, man. I remember, like, when I had, like, a little... Does anyone watch Big Mouth? The show Big Mouth, right? Like, I'm, like, basically Nick, like, that character. Right? Like, I was obs I wanted pubes so badly. I remember when I grew, like, two armpit hairs, I would, like, lick it. So it would look like it was like four armpit hairs. <laughs> oh my God, this is all too real, Pam. Thanks for having me. Uh, and uh, no, and pubes. I, I wanted pubes so badly. Like I remember, like when you when you're pubeless, you just see the world differently. <laughs> You do. Like, so I remember a very specific example. I went to a baseball game, and I remember I had to go pee. So I went to the urinal, and I think guys will understand this in the audience. You know how there's, like, always a healthy garnish of stray pubes, like, on the urinal? <laughs> Girls, do you know this? If you don't know this, basically pretty much every single urinal in the world has, like, a patchy, like, like guy from the mission beard. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
And nowadays I just see that I'm like, oh, okay, I'm just gonna piss and move on with the rest of my life. But back then, I was sincerely amazed. I looked down at those pubes and I was like, Jesus Christ, people are giving these away? <laughs> Broke my heart. <laughs> Thought about taking a couple, but I didn't. <laughs> this has more awes than laughs. Um, but I, di I did finally hit puberty, spoiler alert, I'll have you know. And uh, I trim now, not to brag. And uh, hit my growth spurt too, that was a big thing for me. Now I'm a whopping five foot nine inches tall, or as a lot of ladies put it, ooh, almost. <laughs> yeah, five nine's an interesting height, I think, for a guy, because I don't really feel like I've belonged, ever belonged to a height group, you know? Like the talls never really accepted me. Neither did the shorts. And that was my safety school too, that one hurt. Yeah, no, it wasn't accepted by the shorts either. I'm just sort of this like weird in-between. I'm like a vertical orphan, you know what I mean? Yeah. Do you think if there was ever a war between all the tall people and the short people in the world, I don't know where I would fall under that, like what side I'd be on. I'd probably be the referee. You know, I'm like the vertical equivalent of Switzerland. And uh, I think that'd be a lot of fun to ref a war. Uh, I just, I don't know, whenever I see referees, they look, aside from like the crazy parents who give them shit on the field, like I think refs, it looks like a fun time. It's just exercise and get to, I don't know, it's just a fun time. Like, and I love it when referees at the beginning of a boxing match, they get the two people together, you know? I would love to do that for the tall versus shorts war. I could be like, all right, let's bring it together here. I want a good clean war. Talls, keep the teasing to a minimum. Shorts, no biting. <laughs> okay, just punch with your legs. I don't know. Yeah, I would cheer for the shorts in that war. I just, I feel like they need the win. Yeah, tall people have had it easy for too long. Tall guys have had it easy for way too long, right? Just way too easy. Because they've always been able to attain those hard-to-reach things in life. You know, like shelves or, um, what's that other thing? Uh, pussy? <laughs> tall guys and pussy are just big fans of each other. That's why I always found it so silly when uh, a tall guy joined a dating app. How lazy is that? <laughs> You're tall. The world is your dating app. Just go outside somewhere and stand. <laughs> and then you could left and right swipe women's faces as they walk up to you. <laughs> That's your app. Yeah, ladies want that NBA jizz. Um, yeah, that tag wasn't necessary. <laughs> no, I just, uh, I don't know. Tall people on dating apps, I think it's so silly to me. Uh, I'd be a lot taller if I was on a dating app. I could. I guarantee you that much. I would. Yeah, no, I would uh, probably boost it up to 5'10", maybe even 5'11", if it's boot season. Yeah. I love boots. They're just like, they're like the spanks for short men. I love them. There's so much lift. Yeah. Hmm. Boots. What the fuck was I going to tell you guys about? Boots. Oh, no, so I've never been on a dating app, actually. Um... I'm not saying I'm better than you. I'm just saying I feel like I'm better than you. And uh, no, I've always, and I, even when I was single, I always appreciate, I always liked going out and like meeting girls at bars. I just liked like that raw dog dating style, you know, like no screen in between us. I'll, I'll end on this with you guys. Uh, the term raw dog, right? It's a pretty gross term. It's, it's really nasty. Uh, and my parents are from Brazil. And my dad, he speaks perfect English, but sometimes he doesn't know some of these slang terms. So uh, I'd say like two years ago, he calls me up out of nowhere and goes, Daniel, 
I heard a new word today and I, uh, I want to know what it means. I'm like, all right, what's the word? He goes, it's a raw dog. I'm like, okay, how'd you hear this? And he goes, my coworker went up to me and goes, Carlos, I raw dogged the shit out of this girl last night. I'm like, that's, he used it correctly. It's very direct. <laughs> and he goes, what does this mean? And so after I finished chuckling to myself, I go, well, dad, uh, raw dog uh, is basically when two people have sex without a condom. And then he's just sort of a little quiet on the end there. I could hear him thinking. He just goes, hmm, when I was your age, we just called that love. Aww. He made Raw Dog romantic, you guys. <laughs> All right, that's it for me. Thanks a lot. Dan Aganaga, yay! He's never been on a dating app. You can clap for that too. Yay! You, you're like a you're like a little. What's it called when no one else does that? Uh, snowflake, unicorn, a unicorn. Yes. Uh, no, snowflake is everybody melting in the sun. Uh, I'm also I'm also a unicorn. I've never been on the dating apps, and I find it very silly. And I've had friends who've said like, "Well, you know, dating, you need to raise the bar." And then some people are like, "No, no, no. When it comes to dating, you need to lower the bar." And I'm like, "Meet at the fucking bar." Isn't that how everybody does it? Like that's how I do it. I don't understand these dating apps. Just go to a bar. Yay! I'm an alcoholic, so it's much easier, I guess, for me. Uh, your next comedian, she's so funny. Oh, I know I didn't. I haven't told anybody any list or anything. I've just been like, good luck. You're up next. Have fun with it. Uh, she's so funny, and she's gonna have a great time. You guys are gonna love her. Everybody, Maria DePlutis. Yay! How to use protection. So I am like the token not skinny person here, which is, uh, there, there's no joke there, it's just a fact, it's okay, we can laugh. It's okay to not be skinny. I went and sat here, so the guy behind me is like, great, the one comedian I actually get to see is the one that isn't skinny. It's life. Ooh, Look at this though, huh? Weight loss goals. <laughs> All right, I got one for you. Why did the chicken cross the road? Just two people want to know? Let's try it again. Why did the chicken cross the road? Why? Well, so... <laughs> the chicken was a stand-up comedian, uh, and the chicken had been kind of having a bad day. Like, her, her clothes are a little tight. This isn't about me, by the way. The chicken's not me. Chicken is a separate person. Her clothes are a little tight, you know. She ate a whole burrito. She felt a little bloated. Anyways, uh, she, she did a set at a show, and it didn't go that great. And she wasn't feeling good, you know. Uh, so she, she walked outside of the place where the set was happening, you know, letting the dust settle on the stage where she had just dropped a bomb and uh, feeling like an eggshell of a chicken. So she went outside having a cigarette and some guy came up to her and was like, are you pregnant? (laughs) And then she was like, as she's taking some of her cigarette, no. And then the guy was like, like to come over to my place. So this made the chicken think of her dating days when she was younger. 
the time she spent on OkCupid. Lots of people just posted pictures of their torsos. Like, that was impressive. The torso is like literally the only body part you can't not have. 